Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 62, Dr. Dustin Smith on the Preexistence of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Dr. Dustin Smith is an instructor at Atlanta Bible College. He has a Ph.D. in religion from Bethany Divinity School, and he blogs at dustinmartyr.wordpress.com. He's taught courses on New Testament interpretation, the Gospel of John, Biblical Greek, Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul's first and second letters to the Corinthians, the Synoptic Gospels, and New Testament preaching. Last week, we talked to Dr. Smith about preexistence in ancient Jewish thought. He's here again this week to discuss the preexistence of Jesus in the Gospel according to John. Dr. Smith, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Thanks, Dale. Thanks for having me. Dr. Smith, many people in the world, Christians included, believe in what we might call human post-existence. That is, that at least some humans exist, at least for a while, at some time after their death. So if you believe in heaven, or if you believe in resurrection, you believe in post-existence. But belief in pre-existence is, I think, more unusual. Unless a culture believes in beginningless reincarnation of all souls, then it's unusual to believe that all humans exist prior to their career in this life, that is, prior to their career as an embodied being. In your view, did the authors of the Bible believe that all humans literally pre-exist, say, in some disembodied state before becoming embodied? You know, Dale, I really don't think that you could find that in Scripture. I think people are born, men and women are born in the act of conception. I think that's the typical way to where they are brought into existence, uh, the normal way to where people begin their life. So in your view, the Jews assumed that a human comes into existence at some time between conception and birth. Is that right? Yeah, I think that can be fairly easily demonstrated through the various genealogies in the Bible. You can look at Genesis chapter 5, you can look at the beginning of 1 Chronicles, you can look at Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 3, you could see the typical way that they would talk about descendants, sons and daughters. Just like anyone else is, is born, uh, they come into existence, if we were to use that specific terminology, uh, of a regular person when they are conceived in the, the womb of their mother, that would be the, the beginning point of their literal existence. Dr. Smith, did the Jews of the Second Temple era expect the Messiah to be God appearing in human form? That is, did they expect that the Messiah would be a theophany in which God appears to be a man? You know, I don't think that you find this sort of understanding within Second Temple Jewish texts. Uh, one of the things that you do find within the prophets of the Old Testament is that the expectation is that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, one of the premier kings in the Old Testament. You can look at a passage like, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, where God speaks to David through the prophet Nathan about one of David's descendants. And God says that when your days are complete, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his throne forever. Passage goes on where this descendant has promised the throne of David and a kingdom forever. But this descendant is someone that comes from David. He's one of David's own lineage. He's going to be from the line of David. And you can see similar things in Isaiah chapter 11. You can see similar things in Jeremiah chapter 23, chapter 30. You can see similar things in Ezekiel chapter 34. You can see it in Zechariah. You can see uh, similar things uh, in Qumran. You can see it in some of the pseudepigraphal literature. 
And you can see this, the very similar thing in the New Testament. One of the, the common titles given to Jesus is that he's the son of David. You can see in the opening of the letter to a Romans where Jesus is born of the seed of David. Even in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, remember that Jesus born of the descendants of David according to my gospel. The thought that Jesus would be a lineal descendant of David the king implies that he exists chronologically after David. And it also implies that he is a human being and not merely a theophany, not merely an appearance that God, you know, supernaturally puts out there, right? Absolutely. I think it's interesting that the Gospel of John, the Gospel out of the four biblical Gospels, which people tend to think that Jesus is something much higher than a man, actually the Gospel of John calls Jesus a man more times than Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined perhaps trying to emphasize a particular truth that maybe is on the verge of being lost at that time period, or a truth that's under attack. We're not quite sure it's difficult to reconstruct those things, but that's an emphasis. I think something like 17 or 18 times, It's one of them is ambiguous. In the Gospel of John, Jesus called a human being. So given their general background assumption that human beings do come into existence one after the other in time, and given their really central idea that the Messiah is a human, it's not God himself, it's someone who's God's anointed, somebody who's sent and empowered by God, then they wouldn't have assumed that the Messiah had literally always existed. Now that would be strange because the Messiah is someone through the Jewish expectations, is someone that is promised is someone that is, is going to come onto the scene. Obviously, the son of David is someone that's going to descend from David. He's the root or the shoot or the branch. Sometimes he's called by the Messianic title, the branch. You can see this in Qumran. You can see this in the prophets of the Old Testament. He's someone that couldn't literally exist prior to his birth because that would be quite strange for the way that typical human beings are brought into existence. And I think that you see this, especially in the birth narratives, the two extremely long birth narratives that you find in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. You take Matthew 1, for example, where we talk about the begats. This is the passage where all the begats show up. But it starts with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it goes all the way down, something like 40 begats, going all the way down to Joseph and Mary and to Jesus. And Jesus is the end. He's the climax of all of those people, beginning with Abraham. And Luke actually, in Luke chapter 3, he takes it even further. He goes even before Abraham, and he takes it all the way back to Adam. Jesus is the end, the climactic descendant of all those people. Dr. Smith, so many readers, when they look at the gospel according to John, especially when they contrast it with the other gospels, think that a really prominent theme of the gospel of John is that Jesus, the Messiah, has always existed, that he even existed before the creation of the world. And you've actually published an article where you discuss a couple of the most famous passages, and you argue that this is a mistaken reading. So let's start with those two passages, which are in chapter 8 and chapter 17 of John, and hear your take on them. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then Pharisees said to him, You are testifying on your own behalf. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid because I know where I have come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is valid. I testify on my own behalf and the father who sent me testifies on my behalf. 
I am going away, and you will search for me, but you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Then the Jews said, Is he going to kill himself? Is that what he means by saying, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are from this world, I am not from this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for you will die in your sins, unless you believe that I am he. They said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Why do I speak to you at all? I have much to say about you and much to condemn. But the one who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But I speak these things as the Father instructed me. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham. Jesus answered them, I know that you are descendants of Abraham, yet you look for an opportunity to kill me. You should instead do what you have heard from the Father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man that has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are indeed doing what your father does. They said to him, We are not illegitimate children. We have one father, God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I did not come on my own, but he sent me. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Whoever is from God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not from God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honour my father, and you dishonour me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever keeps my word will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say, Whoever keeps my word will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets also died? Who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. He of whom you say he is our God. Though you do not know him, but I know him. If I would say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, Dr. Smith, isn't Jesus saying in that passage that he existed even in the time of Abraham? He says Abraham saw him, 
And some translations even render verse 58 as, before Abraham was, I existed. How do you understand this passage? There are a couple of things that need to be kept in mind. First of all, the Gospel of John has a major motif, which I like to call the misunderstanding motif. And typically what happens is Jesus will say something very provocative, and his dialogue partner or partners will understand him literally, but Jesus means it figuratively. I'll give you a couple of examples. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they interpret him literally, assuming that he's talking about the temple. Of course, Jesus is speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus also speaks to Nicodemus in chapter 3 that you must be born from above or born again. And Nicodemus interprets it literally, and he says, well, I have to climb into my mother's womb again. And you can multiply these examples throughout the Gospel of John. And it's very obvious that this dialogue between Jesus and his Jewish opponents, he's just speaking right over their heads. They don't understand what's going on. He talks about the truth, and the truth will make him free, and they think that he's talking about slavery. One of the things that Jesus does towards the end of this dialogue is he talks about his importance. And they they start comparing him to Abraham and the prophets. And they say, surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. Now, of course, these Jews think that Jesus is not the Messiah. They think that he is a false Messiah. They think that he is uh, not someone who is, is truly the one that is authorized by God to be the Messiah. And if John is reflecting the dialogue of the end of the first century conflict between the Johannine community and the rabbinic synagogue down the street, then you have those Jews who reject the Christians' claim that Jesus is the Messiah, and they think that Jesus is a false Messiah because he made outlandish claims, or he broke the Sabbath, supposedly, or the biggest one is that he died, and the Messiah is not supposed to die. So, of course, they think that Jesus is a false Messiah. They don't really think that he's sent from God, so they're, they're questioning this from the outset. But it's interesting, and I think maybe you've misspoke, But in verse 56 says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Jesus isn't saying that Abraham saw Jesus. They said that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And it's interesting, there's a lot of uh, Jewish literature that speaks of this. In in 4th Ezra chapter 3 and verse 14, talks about God, how you loved Abraham, and to him only you revealed the end of the times, secretly by night. And so to say that Abraham saw the Messiah was neither new nor offensive, I would say, to the Jewish teachers. But of course, the application of Jesus being that Messiah whom Abraham saw or foresaw in some sort of vision would be seen as unbelievable. And you could see similar Jewish expressions in Genesis Rabbah, chapter 44 and verse 22. But of course, Jesus says, Abraham saw my day. And of course, if one could make the argument that something similar like this is seen in Genesis 17, where God reveals to Abraham that kings are going to come from him and he's going to have lots of descendants. Of course, Jesus is one of the the children of Abraham as a Jew, and he's also a major king as the Messiah, the king of the kingdom of God. And so to say that Abraham rejoiced to see my day is, is not really offensive. But of course, Jesus says this, and the Jews who characteristically misunderstand Jesus in the Gospel of John, respond and they say, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Well, Jesus never said that he saw Abraham. He never said that Abraham specifically saw Jesus. He said that Abraham looked forward to his day. So we've got this misunderstanding and this misapplication. But of course, Jesus is trying to get across to them that he is an important person. He is the Messiah. If he is the Messiah, then he's greater than even the famous patriarch Abraham. I don't think any Jews would disagree with that, that the Messiah would be even more important than Abraham. In order for Jesus to demonstrate that he is even more preeminent than Abraham, is able to say in 858 that truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was born, I am or I am he. 
And so the two things that are actually going on here, first of all, Jesus is very clearly placing himself in time prior to Abraham, and that needs to be explained. And secondly, we need to spend time looking at what does it mean that he says, I am, or I am he, with ego and me, without the predicate there, we have to supply something, I am he. What is this I am he uh, referring to uh, within the mind of Jesus? And so we need to spend time looking at that as well. Well, he uses this phrase, I am, numerous times in the chapter, maybe most notably in verse 24. He says, you'll die in your sins unless you believe, the New Revised Standard says, unless you believe that I am he, Yeah. but I believe it's just ego a me, I am in Greek. And then in verse 28, then you will realize that I am he. And it's noticeable that the translator puts in the personal pronoun he in those instances, but then they just leave it absolute here at the end of the chapter before Abraham was, I am. Why the difference there? You know, every translator comes uh, with their own presupposition and bias, and maybe they are trying to perhaps identify Jesus as, as perhaps making a link with Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, where God is, is speaking to Moses and he's assuring him that he will be with him uh, when Moses goes and frees the Israelites, using, again, the verb to be in Hebrew, hayah. But actually, uh, that's, I think that the association that is characteristically done by uh, Bible readers and scholars alike with John 8.58 and Exodus 3.14 is mistaken. Primarily because uh, in the Septuagint, ego me is not used there. God is o'on, which is the, the being one, literally, there. It's I am the one who is, which is probably the best translation of the Hebrew verb to be hayah. And so I have to look a little bit further in John's gospel to figure out what is going on here with this ego and me. And of course, we've we demonstrated in the reading already, uh, John 8, verse 28, where it says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Well, I am he is who? The Son of Man. That's the messianic title of the coming judge stemming from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. But you can go even earlier I am he, shows up in John chapter 4, where Jesus is speaking to this Samaritan woman who says in John 4 and verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus responds, he says, I who am speaking to you am he, but in the Greek there, it's ego and me. Well, who is Jesus claiming to be? I am speaking to you am the Messiah, the one to whom the Samaritan woman is referring. He claims that we know that Messiah is coming, he was called Christ, Jesus says, I am he, I am that person. And so, right there, ego me means, I am he, the one to whom you're referring, which is the Messiah. We see it in John 8, 28, as referring to the Son of Man, another messianic title, and Jesus is claiming to be this Messiah, of whom Abraham was referring to in uh, eight fifty six. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And so Jesus claiming to be that person, which is an exalted claim. And in all of these cases, the person he's talking to doesn't jump up and say, oh, you're God himself, as if that was his claim. And really, that would be a strange thing to say in 858, truly I tell you before Abraham was, I'm God himself. As you pointed out, he's claiming throughout the chapter to be the Messiah, and he's just distinguished himself from God in verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, he of whom you say he is our God. So the God of the Jews, that's the one that Jesus calls Father. And this is somebody else than Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus would merely be glorifying himself. But he's not because somebody else is doing it. That's God. That's the Father. So it'd be very strange for him to immediately after distinguishing between himself and God, say, oh, and by the way, I'm God himself. 
when it seems at the point he's really driving at is that he is God's anointed. He's God's Messiah. And to add to that, Jesus actually claims in 840 that he is a man, that he, he's an anthropon. He says right there, but as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man. So Jesus claims to be a human being there. Right. It's interesting, passages like that don't tend to get as much weight and, and press as some of the other ones. And the Jewish assumption is that God is not a man, and furthermore, God is immortal. He can't be killed. Mm -hmm. So they are going to be thinking that he is referring to God as to somebody else in this whole chapter. So again, people's theology may cause them to make this kind of ringing absolute statement, I am. They may want to translate that way in verse 58, but typically the phrase is just saying, I am the one that we're talking about. I am a certain person. If I remember right, Jesus is walking on the water and they think it's a ghost. And he says, don't be afraid. The translation in English says, it is I, or it's me. And it's that same phrase, ego a me. He's not saying, don't be afraid. I'm God himself. He's saying, don't be afraid. It's me, Jesus. So it's a very flexible phrase. Yeah, that phrase actually shows up in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 27. Of course, it's interesting that at the end of that passage, those in the boat worshipped him saying, you are God's son. They didn't think that he is the I am from Exodus 3.14. Practically on the same page in my printed Bible, you get chapter 9, and you've got Jesus healing a blind man. Of course, this happens on the Sabbath, and so it creates some controversy but in John chapter 9 and verse 9, you got this blind man, and in the Greek it says that he was repeatedly saying, in the imperfect tense, he was saying, but the Greek says, ego me. But this blind man's not going around claiming to be God, he's claiming to be the one that was just healed. I am he, I am the one. And he kept saying this, he, I mean, he was just going around over and over and over again saying, I am he, I am he, I am he, ego me. That's what the imperfect tense means. Obviously, right there, that doesn't mean I am God. It means that I am the one to whom you're referring. And since Jesus is having this dialogue about Messiahship and his claim to being Messiah, uh, obviously in reference to Abraham, then that's, that's what it is. It's, it's Jesus making this claim to be Messiah. And of course, to claim to be prior to it, to be more important than Abraham is not blasphemous. For Jesus, whom the Jews think is a false Messiah to claim Messiahship, that is the blasphemous part. And that's why they pick up stones to throw at him. So they don't pick up stones to throw at him because they think that he's just said that he's God himself. He's not making a claim to some sort of divinity. But so many readers, they'll acknowledge the general point that I am can have many different uses. But they say, in this case, right after he says I am, they pick up stones to stone him. And doesn't that at least suggest that he was claiming to be God or claiming to be divine? I don't think so. I think because the Jews... They don't accept Jesus as being the Messiah. They don't expect him as being the one truly commissioned by God. Jesus claims to be the one sent by God. He says earlier in that passage in, in 854, my father glorifies me. Remember, Jesus can't glorify himself. It's the father who glorifies me. Jesus is the one that's commissioned by the father. The father sets his uh, seal of approval on him. And uh, you know he's empowered by God. In John 6, 27, Jesus says, the Father God has set his seal upon me. He's authorized by the Father as the Messiah. He's empowered by God to do these things. And we could also add the point, now the author doesn't really elaborate, he doesn't explicitly set out why they picked up stones to throw at him, but I mean, if they were so foolish as to thinking that he was, after all this, after clearly it's his messiahship that's the issue, 
if after all that they think that he's now claiming to be God by saying ego a me, then it looks like that would just be another example of foolishly misunderstanding what Jesus is saying because of spiritual blindness. Right. It would be very strange for us, having recognized the motif in the fourth gospel of misunderstanding, where Jesus says something provocative, his readers characteristically misunderstand him by taking him literally, but Jesus means something figuratively. It would be wrong for us to take the place of Jesus' audience and to take Jesus' provocative statements as literally as possible. That would be for us to make the same mistakes that the Jews are in this ongoing motif of misunderstanding. Dr. Smith, the other main passage that you discussed in your published article is John 17, 5. There, Jesus is praying, and he says, So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. Now, isn't he straight up saying that before the world existed, he had a glorious existence alongside the Father? Well, I think what he's saying is that his glory was what was with God before the world was. It was this glory, and, and the glory within the Gospel of John involves the crucifixion, the exaltation of Jesus. But Jesus is saying, glorify me together with yourself with this glory which I had with you. It was back there as with God from the beginning of the world. And I demonstrated last week, when we look at all of these passages which talk about the, the prominent and important things within Jewish uh, theology and ideology, such as throne of glory, the Torah, the Garden of Eden, repentance, the name of the Messiah, all these things pre-existed with God. They are there in his, in his plan, in his purposes, in his concepts. And so Jesus can say these things, and if I interpret that within the matrix of Jewish thought uh, expressed in those passages, we could see that it's probably not Jesus speaking of something that he literally had up there, in whatever sense that would mean, but something that it was a glory and prospect, a glory which God had in his design and, and purposes for the entire world. Just as we saw in Revelation 13:8, where the Lamb was crucified from the foundation of the world, not literally, but obviously in God's plan. In 1 Peter 1.20, where Jesus was foreknown from the foundation of the world, he didn't literally exist up there. He was within God's foreknowledge and purposes. And I think that's probably the most appropriate way to approach a text like this. And even further along in the passage, where this glory shows up in John 17, verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. This is the people of whom Jesus is praying um, in this entire prayer. He, Jesus has already given it to them. Well, that hasn't happened yet. I mean, Jesus hasn't even been glorified yet because he hasn't died and risen as far as the narrative is concerned. But Jesus is, is speaking in this way, as we demonstrated in some of the previous passages, where the things can be spoken of within God's purposes as having already occurred because they are so sure to take place. And so we could see that sort of language is used even within John chapter 17, where the disputed passage is located. Dr. Smith, I can imagine someone saying, okay, I see your point about I am he, and I recognize that Jesus could be speaking in this tradition where things that are destined are spoken of as being with God before the world. But come on, you're just resisting the inevitable because the pre-existence of Jesus is just all over the Gospel of John. For instance, there are passages that speak of Jesus descending or ascending. John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and am going to the Father. John 6, 62, 
then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So it looks like that Jesus had an existence before his human life. He existed in heaven, and there's no reason to think this was just, you know, three years before he was born or something like that. Presumably, this is an eternal heavenly existence and a literal pre-existence. So, shouldn't we understand those ascending and descending passages as Jesus going from eternity in heaven with God and coming into the world of time and space? You know, I think that's a good question. I think if we were to approach this with a strictly literal wooden way of reading these words, then yeah, that would be the most natural conclusion that we would draw from such passages. Unfortunately, I think we have uh, the matrix of Jewish thought, which would speak again of prominent persons uh, and things as having already existed within God's plans and concepts from the beginning of the world. One of those being the person of the Messiah or the name of the Messiah in a variety of places, both uh, biblical and extra biblical. And so I think we have to approach these texts by placing them in the context of that Jewish expectation and the way that this sort of language is used. Just very quickly, on John uh, 16, 28, we have what I call, a, or what, what scholars call, a chiasm, uh, where you have kind of a, an A and a B, and then a B prime and an A prime. I have come from the Father and come into the world would be A and B, and then uh, B prime and A prime, and I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. But coming into the world is actually an idiom of being born. And you can see this uh, in a variety of extra-biblical sources, but you can also see this within the Gospel of John itself. Earlier in the passage, Jesus gives uh, a parable of a woman in labor, and she bears a son. 16.21, the child has been born into the world. The child didn't descend from heaven like rain descends. Born into the world means to be born. And even Jesus himself speaks of this when he's before Pilate, that he was born, that his kingdom is not of the world. The audience, or the crowds in John chapter 6 who think about Jesus, but they also think that he is the prophet. In 6 verse 14, these people saw the sign which he had performed, and they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Well, this prophet is a prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, the prophet which is to come from among the Israelite countrymen. He's supposed to be a member of their own people. So to come into the world means to be put onto the scene, to be born, but it doesn't mean to descend literally from heaven. That would be to read the imagery a little bit too literally. Moving to 662, uh, this ascending and descending implies uh, not so much a, a place of origin, but uh, almost, almost a side of allegiance. We can see that uh, Jesus, when he argues with the Jews, he says, you are from below. I am from above. From below doesn't mean that they, they've come up from the bottom of the ground. He says that you are of your father, the devil. Well, obviously, that's not literally true. That's where they're going to define their allegiance. So if Jesus is really from above, that means that he has truly been sent by God. He has been authorized as the Messiah. He is truly God's son. He's not a false Messiah. He's not a false prophet. He truly has that authorization. I can almost think of another example in Matthew when Jesus is asking about uh, the baptism of John. Is it from heaven or is it from human beings? As in, was it really authorized by God? Is it legitimate? Is it something real or is it something made up by humans? Well, from heaven doesn't mean that the baptism, the water just came down. It just means that it has God's um, authoritative backing. And so I think you can make that argument about Jesus being from above. 
And a similar thing could be said in chapter 3 and verse 13, where uh, the Son of Man who descended from heaven. And this is, again, a typical Jewish way of saying that it's a gift from God. You can see even within the Christian scriptures in James chapter 1 and verse 17, where it says, every good and perfect gift has come down from above. Well, not literally. It's not that the, the baby being born in the hospital right now didn't literally drop from heaven. It just means that it's a gift from God. And you can see later in the book of James to where uh, evil thoughts are not from above. They're from below. As in, they don't have their quality and characteristic as being defined as from above. They aren't associated with the true God. They're, they're from below. It's, it's this dualism of identity, not a dualism of, of origin and location. I have a friend who has been married twice, and I think he would say that the first wife was from hell and the second wife was from heaven. And what he means is just a point about the quality of wife that she made. It's a similar point, right? It's a point about quality and similarity to either God or to Satan. Right. While it's, it's very good for us to find modern parallels to this, I want to continue to point out that I'm, I'm trying to find evidence from within Jewish literature or the Christian scriptures to build my case. Even, even in John chapter 15, where Jesus talks about the disciples who are not of this world. Chapter 15 and verse 19, the disciples are not of this world. What does that mean? Does that mean they pre-existed from heaven? Does that mean they literally dropped from the skies, you know, and fell down to Judea? Well, certainly not. It means that they don't belong to this present system. And I guess we should talk about world, um, world or cosmos in John's gospel. Does it mean the third rock from the sun? It means this kind of present evil system that's opposed to God and is in need of redemption and restoration. And I think understanding how that particular language is used um, helps explain some of these things. So coming into the world means uh, coming into this system for the purpose of bringing redemption, which, by the way, brings a little bit more understanding to the famous John 3.16 passage. Dr. Smith, I could see then how descending from heaven can just mean being sent by God. But what about in 3.13, where he says no one's ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven? Don't we have to take the descent and the ascent as literal there? Well, I think if we put it into context, uh, not only within the chapter, but within the way the Jews would speak about people who have ascended into heaven. You look in the previous verse, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, he says, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What if I explain to you the deeper things of God? And, and then he goes and he says, no one has ascended into heaven. No one has gone into the mind of God and is able to reveal all of these things except for me, the one who has been a gift from God, the one that has been sent by God as descended from heaven. I, I, I'm that special person there. And I think this is interesting. It's almost polemical because we have a variety of literature where Jews could say that people like Enoch and Abraham and Adam and Levi and Baruch and Isaiah have all ascended into heaven in order to understand the things of God and are able to reveal it to the Jewish people. But John's Gospel is actually saying, no, the only person who is truly able to reveal the things of God is Jesus, who is the true Messiah, he is the true Son, he is truly the one that has been commissioned by God. So you agree that it's natural to take the ascent and the descent in 313 in the same way, but you're suggesting it makes the most sense to take them both non-literally. I would say that coming at it from the way that we would read it in a literal sense as 21st century Westerners is to perhaps misunderstand the metaphor that's being used by Jews at that time and also within the narrative as we presently have it, especially starting in verse 12. 
I can imagine now how some listening would say, okay, I understand how the passages that we've discussed so far don't need to be taken as involving literal pre-existence for the man Jesus. But what about chapter 1? One thing that occurs at the end of chapter 1 is that the prophet John the Baptist says about Jesus, quote, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me, or some translations say because Jesus existed before him. What about that? Isn't that a straight-up statement by the prophet of Jesus' pre-existence? You know, it's interesting. I recently gave a vocabulary quiz to some of my Greek students, and we had this word protos. It's the word protos that shows up chapter 115, where this uh, sin with Jesus and John the Baptist shows up. It also shows up, by the way, again repeated in verse 30, or similar thing shows up. But the word protos, I quizzed him, and I said it could mean two things. It could mean someone who is first in time or someone who is first in rank. And you can see both definitions used in the New Testament. Someone could be first in time or someone could be first in rank. Even Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says that he is the protos sinner. Is he the very first sinner in time? Unlikely, he is the most preeminent sinner because he tried to persecute the church. And so it's ambiguous. Is John saying that Jesus has a higher rank than John the Baptist because he existed before me? Well, it's possible, but it's very strange because Jesus has come into existence. He was born. He says that he is born. He says that he's a human being in John's gospel. It could also mean that he has a higher rank than I because he was always my superior. could be translated that way. And so it's just ambiguous. It depends on, on how you, you come to the text and how you define that. Just most people are not aware that that word could mean first in time or first in rank. And it's interesting because this draws on the tradition that we see in the synoptics, where John the Baptist says, you know, I'm unable to loosen the straps on his sandal because he, he's just much greater. He's actually mightier than I. Notice that the reason that, that John the Baptist feels that he is unworthy is because Jesus is mightier. He is of a higher rank. And so I think that lends credence to this interpretation that protos means first in rank. Yeah, you might even wonder if there's a non sequitur here. I mean, if, if some uh, foreigner came to the United States of America and said that Joe Biden ranks ahead of Barack Obama because Joe Biden existed before Obama, well, he did exist before Obama. Biden is older than Obama, but it doesn't follow from that that he ranks higher, right? How would you prefer to translate that sentence by John the Baptist? I would probably translate it, um, he was my superior, or he was, he was ranked higher than me. The Greek says, ati protos mu in, because he was my superior. That's how I'd probably translate it there off the cuff, uh, because he was my superior. Many listeners are going to wonder about John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What could be more straightforward than that? Isn't that saying that Jesus already existed at the point at which the world was created? Well, we could spend, obviously, a long time talking about John 1. I just want to say very quickly, uh, so that we don't take up too much time, is that this is not talking about the pre-existence of Jesus. It's talking about the pre-existence of God's Word. In the beginning was the Word. And I immediately have resonances with, with Genesis chapter 1, where God speaks things into creation, Genesis 1-3, Vayamer Elohim, and God says, God speaks, and his words bring things in, in the creation. You can see parallels of this in Psalm 33 and verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, 
And so God's word is powerful. God's word uh, is, is with him. It's in close relationship with him and his presence. And, and his word is his own expression because the words that you speak are expression of your mind and plans. And this word is personified here because uh, Logos is a masculine noun. It's personified in this poem. Uh, John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 is a large poem. And so therefore we should allow for the metaphor of poems and poetry to take their place. And so the word is personified as a he, similar to how wisdom, the personification of God's wise interaction with the world, is personified as a she in Proverbs 8 and Wisdom of Solomon chapter 6. But this word becomes embodied when you get to verse 14, and the word became flesh. God's spoken word and his utterance gets embodied in the human being Jesus, and he tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. And so I would say the word is just that. It's, it's God's uh, personified utterance which is creative, it's powerful, and it's a reflection of God's very being. And this word in, in poetry and in metaphor gets personified in the human being Jesus, which is why Jesus can go around in John's gospel all over the place and claim to speak not his own words, but the words of the Father. He's God's spokesperson. Dr. Smith, thank you for talking with us. Sure, Dale. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.